0: Art of the Cut is brought to you by FilmTools.com, your one-stop shop for production and post-production gear. Be sure to listen for an exclusive site-wide offer later in the show. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to the Art of the Cut podcast. I'm Steve Hallfish. I'm a feature film editor and discuss the art and craft of film editing with my colleagues in film and TV. Today, I talk animation editing with Kevin Nolting, ACE, and his work as editor on Pixar's Soul with Pete Doctor. Kevin's last two animated features won Ace Eddies for editing Inside Out and Up. He also worked as additional or second editor on Toy Story 4, Monsters University, WALL-E, Cars, and Finding Nemo. His live-action narrative credits include assistant or associate editor work on Shanghai Noon, The Insider, Indecent Proposal, and The Naked Gun, Two and a Half. We start our discussion by jumping right into his background in traditional narrative film. Did you come from more of a live background?
1: Yeah, just strictly live action.
0: What was that transition like?
1: It was completely different. Cutting storyboards is strangely difficult. (laughs) And it requires a lot of patience and can be very tedious. I mean, I've seen over the years at Pixar, you know, every now and then we'll bring good editors from live action in to help us. And some people take to it immediately and others just don't take to it. So mm-hmm. I took to it pretty quickly. I think it was just inherently came to me. So,
0: well, the interesting thing, right, is that there's so much freedom. I wonder if that's what trips some people up—that you can get, you know, oh, I wish there was a close-up, and somebody goes off and draws you a close-up. You know?
1: <laughs> that's definitely a thing because limitations are often good, and especially with Pete Doctor, I've been thinking about exploration versus execution. And over the three movies I've done with Pete, up we had a pretty solid script when we started. It changed a lot, but the structure of it was pretty solid. And then Inside Out was a little more loose, and Soul was just completely a journey and exploration. Mm. And the execution part of it, from an editing point of view, was actually very short, because we were constantly doing big changes to the movie.
0: And that's the exploration you're talking about.
1: Yeah. And with Pete, it's really fun because you're not just exploring making a movie. You're exploring the themes. Like, we spend a lot of time just reading and talking to people about the thing we're making the movie about. So it becomes almost like a college course or something where you just get to explore all these different ideas. and then movie making the movie almost becomes like a, a way of sort of writing your final paper or something. you condense all these ideas into this dramatic form.
0: I think of animation editing almost like if anybody's ever done any workshopping of a movie or workshopping of a play, it's kind of like that. There's no real script for the play. You bring the actors in and you say, what should the scene be? And then they play it. And then you go, oh, you know, but that line wasn't quite working.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's definitely true with the way we work with Pete. We have writers, and I don't want to discount what they do. Because sure. They, they're good writers and they do a great job. But the writing process, I think he just sees it as a leaping off point. And like you said, we workshop with story a lot. And the writers are always there when we're working with story artists. But it's definitely a workshop feel. In fact, Ronnie Del Carmen, I mean, he's just the most amazing story artist I've worked with. He was the story lead on Up and the co director on Inside Out. He uses that word workshop that's his like favorite verb we go to the to scene <laughs> <laughs> and for those
0: who might not be familiar with animation editing that phrase story artist" might need some explanation these are the guys that actually draw the boards but they're more than just artists right they're really trying to come up with concepts and gags and all that kind of stuff tell me a little bit about your relationship to the story artists
1: so i work extremely closely with them because that's what we do we usually make the movie for two almost three years before we go into production we just make the movie with the story artists so in a sense they're co-writers some of them are really good visual artists like ronnie speaks visually and he expresses himself visually. but a lot of the story artists are they're good draftsmen and they're good okay artists but they're really into story theory. And they're somewhere between a story artist and a writer and they're more verbal type people. So usually the story team will have a good mix of those different kinds of people. Some people are just inherently just great with the camera and great visually. And then others are always giving us sort of the more verbal side of the storytelling process.
0: Yeah, it's so interesting that you would talk about the camera. So somebody might think that somebody who's drawing storyboards what do they have to do with a camera? But when they draw a board, they are deciding where the camera is gonna be placed to see the characters, to see the action, correct? That's what you're talking about.
1: Yeah, they're basically building shots and we approach it like shots. It's just not animated 24 frames, it's more like maybe every 12 frames, depending on the kind of shot it is. And we use a lot of their staging when we get into camera and layout will use their staging as a basis. And then once we're in the actual set with real camera, of course we can explore a lot more and we discover what we were missing or we actually have a set now to work with. But yeah, they're the early stage of the camera process.
0: Yeah, I worked for a couple of years for a big idea of VeggieTales, doing a couple of feature films and a lot of their TV shows. So i've been a lot of part of that same process and those story artists are they're the heart and soul of the movie i think a lot of that
1: yeah yeah oh yeah
0: talk to me a little bit about music for this film it's so deeply embedded and interwoven into the film when did things transition from temp score to score and licensed music
1: so we started off i was using the arrival soundtrack a lot uh, johan johansson i just love his music mm-hmm. and arrival just Fit this new, especially the early scenes, you know, in the pre-life world, it just fit beautifully. So that was sort of our standard there. And then the other score we used was Captain Fantastic, this sort of ethereal, gritty sound also mixed in there. And that was all for the non-Earth world. And then we were always going to use jazz for the Earth stuff because he was a jazz musician. The music process started much earlier on this film than usual because once Trent, Resner and Atticus Ross decided to do the film. They work very early with David Fincher. I mean, they'll send him pieces of music before they begin shooting. And mm-hmm. He'll use that music as an influence on the shooting, I think. So they were used to that. They came in, for us, they came in fairly early, about halfway through the process. And I think they sent us like nine, five, seven-minute tracks that were just explorations, multi-layered like, multi-tracks with all these beautiful sounds and melodies. And we just started playing around with those in the cut. And then eventually they would come to screenings and we'd send them copies and then it just started. It was just a much longer process than usual than just handing a composer a score. And the same with John Batiste, we did a couple of sessions fairly early on in a studio and he brought in some session players and did a lot of the jazz cues. The cue for the audition at the beginning of the movie when he goes into the zone, he did like seven or eight takes of that. And then various jazz cues over the years. I think we did two, three or four sessions with him.
0: When you switched between the temp and the final score or the music that was licensed, did that require some re-editing or re-timing of edits?
1: You know, Trent and Atticus worked pretty loosely. In the past, they said they rarely scored specifically to picture. They would give the show pieces of music that they thought worked and then a music editor would make it work. As time went on on the show, they became more and more specific, but they were generally being specific to our picture. The scene toward the end when Joe plays his life, sort of, we call it epiphany That one required some recutting. We also changed it conceptually at a certain point, but it was really just frames and, you know, it wasn't Mm -hmm. a major recut.
0: Yeah. And and it sounds like Trent and Atticus are not into what you would consider Mickey Mousing a score. Yeah. Where you can really feel where the cues hit.
1: Yeah. Well, they did get very specific a few times. They started as we went on. It was funny because I didn't expect that. And it was all good but it was sort of surprising now and then when they they'd send us a cue and then we'd send it back to them to look at and they'd say oh no we want this specifically you know so
0: very interesting some of the animation is really conceptual were those concept pieces storyboarded in a typical form or was it harder because of the conceptual nature
1: yeah, mainly those line drawing counselors, we call them, the mm-hmm. Jerry's.
0: Yeah, the Jerry's.
1: <laughs> yeah, and storyboards, I mean, we couldn't even imagine what they were going to look like. And somebody in the art department did these wire sculptures and then put a light on the side and moved the light around and show how you could make these characters that are essentially defined by light and line. And it was a huge technical challenge just to rig that for animation. And then, of course, all of those scenes were the last things to go into animation because that was always the part of the story that was always most up in the air. So they didn't have a lot of time to work with it. And they ended up having a core group of four or five animators who just mastered those characters. As they were animating the scenes, they essentially learned how to define how they could move and what they would do. But it was all done in animation, that part of it.
0: Hmm. Yeah, those Jerry's seemed very kind of Picasso-like to me.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's sort of a Picasso, Miro. It's this weird combination of abstract.
0: As I watched the film, one of the things that I thought about was the balance of that real conceptual out-of-body stuff and then the stuff that's more on the earth. Was that a big debate between you and Peter and the other people on the team to decide how much happens on earth and how much happens on this other place?
1: the first version of the movie, they never went to earth. And we did that actually for a couple versions. And we got around it by having this pavilion in the pre-earth part where you could play back your life. And a lot of the movie was 22 taking Joe in there to show him his life and then him going back to look at different parts of his life. And the the story evolved and they never went to earth. After about a year, I think of doing that, we sort of hit a wall with the movie. And Mike Jones, he was riding alone at that time before Kemp came on. He went off and did this version of the movie that introduced this going back to Earth body swap idea. And that sort of launched us in that direction.
0: That's really interesting.
1: But the initial goal was to not go to Earth, to keep it up in that world. Wow. But it turned out to be a really difficult thing to do.
0: I would think that a change that big would be really difficult.
1: I don't know, I've gotten used to it with Pete over the years. I know that not everybody works that way at Pixar, but we've sort of evolved this way of working that I personally love now, where the first year on the movie, we don't take things too seriously. We don't dig into details a lot, and it's almost like very broad strokes of a movie, a very impressionistic way to approach it. You put these scenes up, And there were specific scenes where we'd get into the nitty-gritty and try to really hit the emotion. But it was more about just finding the overall movement of the movie and the tones. And then slowly over the years, we hone in on the details. You have to really have a lot of confidence, but a lot of faith that people aren't going to lose faith in you, in a sense. Because we have this process at Pixar where every four months we put the movie up, we run it in the big theater, and we invite different departments from the studio who haven't seen the movie before to see the movie. And then after we run the movie, we go into a room and we talk about the movie with people like Andrew Stanton and Brad Bird, people who are pretty harsh critics at that point. So it took us a long time to sort of have the faith to throw a movie up there that we knew was broken, that we hadn't polished at all. And we're presenting ideas essentially and asking for help and how to sort of mold this into a more dramatic structure. But we've been doing that now for a few years and it's turned out to be a really great way to work.
0: Is that a difficult thing on your ego or do you just go, I know that this is the process and this is what they're expecting out of me. And so here you go.
1: That was the actual, the biggest obstacle to working this way for me. It's like, yeah, you're presenting this thing to your peer, to people in the company who are like waiting for this movie to come out in four years. And everybody's really anxious, especially with a Pete movie, to see how they're gonna evolve. And it's just brutal knowing that all of these things are not Paula. you know, it's, I would never show this to anybody. It took me a long time just to do it with Pete where I'd be working on a scene and in animation, you have this luxury of, if I decide halfway through the scene it's not working, how much time do you want to put into it? Because mm-hmm. I know we can rewrite it, and I know we're going to rewrite it. So early on, I learned to just call Pete in at a certain point if I didn't think a scene was working, and just say, take a look at this, should we pursue this or not? And so we saved a lot of time that way, because he could see right away that, oh yeah, we need to get in and rewrite re- this. So it's sort of evolved to the point where we show more and more people the movie in that state, where we're clearly going to go back in and rework it. But since we sort of have this obligation, and it's a good obligation to every four months just sort of do a reality check and see where you are. Because we do have a schedule, and we have a production schedule we have to stick to. So it's good to get the movie out there every four months and take your beating on what's not working.
0: Was that jump to deciding you were going to start to show Earth? Was that kind of a place where you felt like, okay, we broke the story and now things are headed in the right direction? Or,
1: Yeah, it's for me, it's a mixed blessing and still is. And in fact, I just watched today the first version of the movie. <laughs> and there's so much in there that I love that we had to let go of once we decided to do that. <clears throat> but also I could see the movie wasn't working in that state so in order to meet the schedule and to actually have a movie that makes sense it, yes it's definitely the best thing to do
0: mm. it's so interesting that there's great parts of a movie that have to get dumped because there's either no way to get that movie to be part of the rest of the movie can you talk a little bit about how those decisions get made and how you have to kill your babies right
1: yeah I mean that's really what it is and that's the hardest thing for all of us i think in animation it's in a way i think it's a little harder because you're really writing the movie as you're making the movie so you're seeing a lot more of that writing process than you normally would like in a live action scenario but the longer you do it, it just gets easier to just say yeah we've done this before and we survived and we actually made the movie better and i'm not going to hold on to this <laughs> it was just running it today all these lines that we had thrown out that i absolutely love but i wouldn't have remembered had i not run the movie again
0: Mm. speaking of those lines i saw that tina fey and some others did some additional dialogue writing do you remember how some of that was added or what the process was to bring those people in
1: yeah we started doing this on inside out on inside out we had a really hard time finding the character joy and making her appealing Because if you analyze it, she's a pretty unappealing character in what she's trying to do. And it wasn't until Amy Poehler came in that we really started to find the character. And Amy Poehler, being a writer, went off. And I know Pete went with her. They went off to New York and did a few writing sessions. And it really made the character come to life and made an appealing character. So when Tina Fey came onto this show, it sort of became a no brainer to do that. And I think she's very comfortable writing. And so that was sort of a natural evolution because Pete had done it with Amy Poehler before and Amy and Tina are friends. And Bill Hader has been involved since Inside Out with our movies. He came on to Inside Out and did a week of writing with us and he didn't get credited, but I believe he was on Soul he did a little bit too.
0: Mm. We'll be back in a moment with more of my interview with Kevin Nolting. Today's episode of the Art of the Cut podcast is brought to you by FilmTools.com. Since 1996, FilmTools has been Hollywood's one-stop shop for all things production and post. No matter your filmmaking needs, FilmTools has you covered when you need gear for your next shoot or edit. This week, Film Tools is offering Art of the Cut listeners 10% off thousands of products when shopping on FilmTools.com. All you have to do is enter code AOTC10 at checkout. That's AOTC10 at checkout to get 10% off your purchase on FilmTools.com. So whether you need a G-Tech hard drive or an Airy Sky panel, make sure to head over to FilmTools.com and check out with discount code AOTC10 to get 10% off your next equipment purchase. And now back to my interview with Kevin Nolting. There were some deeply funny laugh out loud moments and also some very profound moments in this movie. And animation editing is so much more of a process than traditional feature films. Can you talk about the moments of revelation or discovery that happened throughout that process and trying to balance the tone of comedy and the more deep moments?
1: Yeah, that's the ongoing struggle for me at Pixar. And especially with Pete, I don't want to call it a struggle. I mean, that's just the ongoing conversation Mm -hmm. is you could take Pete's ideas and go completely serious and adult. And that's actually our instinct at first. We're constantly having to take the note that it's not entertaining enough, it's not funny enough, and try to build that into the story. That's one way to approach it. And that's the way pete likes to approach it i think is to get the, the heart of the story sort of the adult story solid and then start making it appealing to a broader audience and to kids and try to make it funny that's just sort of the way he's been working the last few years but it's definitely a thing and working on his movies so collaborative and the personalities involved And if you analyze the personalities involved you will find the funny person, the serious person. And that's how Pixar sort of evolved. If you go back to the original movies, Toy Story, I know all these guys closely now, Andrew Stan, Pete Docter, Lee Ungridge, and John Lasseter. And you can see where that was just sort of a perfect combination of their approach toward movie making, their approach toward movies, what they like in movies, and that's all there. And I think Pete sort of continued that tradition. He's very collaborative. We sit in a story room, and you can see that there's a person who's going to bring the comedy. There's a person who's going to bring the heart. And that's the process, basically. And then over the years, we just try to find the right balance of all of that. So that the movie plays and plays for everybody. Yeah, It's really a really hard thing to <laughs> to make something play for an 8-year-old and for a 60-year-old.
0: How much do you feel like you're kind of in the middle of that as the editor trying to offer suggestions, especially about balance. I think editors have a unique place in choosing the balance of action versus quieter moments and deep moments versus funny moments. Talk to me about your role in that.
1: Well, I mean, all editors have deep influence on all of that, and in animation it's sort of magnified in a sense because it's such a long process. And again, I've just learned to have patience and present the ideas at the right time, and there's an art to that. The nice thing we have, especially in animation, that all editors can do this, is you can sit in a room, like I sit in a room full of story people and writers, and everybody's pitching ideas and talking and sort of arguing for their idea, and we can quietly go back to our room and cut a version of a scene that presents our ideas, and we have the advantage of actually projecting it and letting the director see it in the environment, he's gonna see the movie as a movie as opposed to a discussion or a script page. So I just try to use that, not just to my advantage, but to the movie's advantage. I work very closely with the head of story. If If we're talking and we agree a scene isn't working or we think we could approach a part of the movie a different way, We can sit down and I used to do this with Ronnie Del Carmen all the time and just sort of reconceive a scene quickly. He could sketch it out and I could cut it quickly and throw music in there and we could show it to Pete and say, what do you think? Does this work better?
0: I want to pick up on something that you mentioned briefly, which is that it depends on not only having an idea, but knowing when to share it. (laughs) I think we're in this kind of unique position of being, psychologists and therapists and political scientists. Tell me a little bit about what you mean by sharing an idea at the right time.
1: So we show our, every four months, like I said, we show the movie to a different group of people, 200 people, and we open it up. At the beginning, when you introduce the movie, the producer stands up there and says, we'd love your feedback. Here's my email address. Or we even have a thing now, a form, like a preview form online called notes are where you can, you can go in. (laughs) Notes are, (laughs) (laughs) Um,
0: spell that for me. I
1: don't know if
0: I can. I'll make it up.
1: (laughs) And so you run the movie and then you can go and a director just gets bombarded with ideas. I mean, and they're good. I mean, Pixar is full of very smart people, smart creative people. It's not like they're bad ideas. But we're on a schedule, and we have to make this movie for a certain amount of money and a certain amount of time, just like anyone else. And you're, <laughs> you've got 200 smart people sending in their thoughts, opinions, ideas. And it is, I mean, I can't even imagine how overwhelming that is. And a young director can easily get confused. So as an editor, and as somebody who has Pete's ear anytime I want, essentially, I've learned patience. And if I feel strongly about something, I just sort of have a sense now. I'll wait till we're in the cutting room together. Like I said, I might give an alt version and just quietly show it to him at the right time. If you try to give a director your opinion and ideas when he's in the middle of reading 200 other things, it's just you're just contributing to the noise at a certain point.
0: Is that something that you also feel like a skill that you used when you were doing live action? You have to know when to pitch an idea or when to voice an objection?
1: Oh, I think so, essentially, yeah. I mean, you know, directors are people. They have moods, they have bad days, good days. (laughs) They have fights with their wives, and they come to work, and they're not hearing anything. So in any sort of collaborative creative process, I think it's
0: learning how to read the room and just know when to say things. Yeah. Learn how to read the room. That is, that's some good editing advice right there. There's an amazing montage that happens. As an editor, you've got a name for things, right? I called it the purpose montage when he realizes the purpose and he puts these kind of talismans above the keyboard to almost read them as music. Talk to me about that montage and building it and designing it.
1: So that actually, that was in the first version of the movie. Trevor Jimenez, one of the story leads, just an amazing artist in the vein of Ronnie Del Carmen. just draws really evocative, soulful drawings. And so he would be given these kinds of scenes, or he would come up with them, actually, a lot of times. And um, originally, it was Joe playing his life after he had had this epiphany. I was just noticing the first couple versions I mean, logically, if you think about it, the scene, it's not an orchestral, it's electronic, but it's score that is playing through there, and the piano is overlaid, is playing along with the score, and we have a separate piano track so that we could mix from piano into the score. Originally, it was conceived as he was playing jazz music, because really, if he's going to replay his life, he should improvise those things. And we tried doing that with us using this cue, this Herbie Hancock cue, Blue Otani. And trying to manipulate the music so that he's looking at these things. And then the music he would play coincided with the memory. So like there was a scene where the sewing machine was running. I tried to find a piece of the music where it sounded more da 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 sewing machine. The, the whole construct of the scene emotionally wasn't right because essentially to get into that place to play that way, he had already realized what his mistake was, and he had this epiphany. And then it just became almost like this mechanical thing where he sat down to play it, but he wasn't learning anything as he played. So once we got past that and decided not to try to manipulate the jazz to do that, and started using score, we used this Captain Fantastic piece of score. One of the music editors at Pixar, Andrew Vernon, has been on the piano. So we had him do a piano version. There is piano in the score, but we couldn't get the separate tracks, of course. So he did a piano version of it so that we could start with him playing the piano and then sort of bleed the score in over that. And then it started to come together emotionally. And we realized if a montage is just sort of repeating information. That's when montages are boring, frankly. So we reconceived it so that he was having the revelation as he played. At the beginning of the scene, it's weird. He's remembering things through his head that 22 had done in his body. And as he plays, it drifts into his own memories. And then in the acting, you see him sort of having this epiphany so that at the end of the cue and the montage, he knows what to do. So once we started approaching it that way, it really came together and started feeling emotional as opposed to an exercise.
0: I love that answer. That's really interesting. Wow. Can you think of any other things that editors could, from experienced narrative editors to aspiring editors to film animation editors, what would be instructive? Consider you a mentor to me. What, (laughs) what What have you learned from the film that you could tell me?
1: Just the way we work with Pete, I'm such a fan of working loose and then getting more detailed, just to find the tone and find the big picture. You know, I've worked with directors that Pixar's love to dig into the gags, like you'd be working on a scene, and as I'm working on the scene, I'm thinking, does this even belong in the movie? And he's wanting to work till midnight to fine tune these gags, and they you know, he'd make them funny, and then we'd run the movie, and then you realize, well, that, <laughs> that scene's not even going to be in the movie. Maybe we can use the gag somewhere. So that's just sort of a lesson I've learned over the years with Pete, is having the confidence to air your dirty laundry in Just show your stuff ugly, and you know what's going to turn out well eventually if you work hard enough. Mm. That's one big lesson I've gotten.
0: That's a great lesson, but think through this with me a little bit. It probably depends on the director very much, don't you Oh, think?
1: Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Definitely. And so, yeah, I guess the flip side of that is learning how to work with a director. For me, I've learned that. And so if I have to go back to the other way of working, I'm going to have to learn now how to work best with a director that way hmm. because ultimately it's their director's movie and they need to work the way they need to work and how to work that way and still get to where you think you need to get with the movie would be a challenge for me right now because I've been doing it this way
0: for so long. Do you think you'll go back to live action at any point or are you an animation editor at this point?
1: There is something so appealing about live action. I mean, animation editing is a long, long slog. And um, I wouldn't call it a slog, but um, <laughs> every now and then, you know what I started doing? about 10 years ago a group of us at Pixar did a few of these uh, we did like four or five 48 hour movies i love these 48 40 hour, hour film festivals yeah and little local film festivals will do that we did one 24 hour one and i just loved it i mean we did one animated one with Ronnie but most they were all live action and just the thrill of like making something that fast and finishing it and just having to be really quick and responsive to ideas was such a relief you know (laughs) (laughs) and so yes i would love to edit live action you know how it is though in the entertainment world you get into a thing and that's the people you know and that's what people see you as and that's pretty much sort of the path you go down but yeah i continue to do live action things on the side
0: to ask a final question of you these movies this one and Up, i think have such great emotion. Talk to me about trying to have a sense of emotion, not going over the top, feeling it, being empathetic to that emotion. Tell me a little bit about how that works with an editor.
1: In my case, and working with Pete, the thing I always hammer home is you can't create emotion. You can't say, we're going to make the audience cry here. And so now we'll do it through animation or we'll do it through music, Or although music certainly helps a lot. It's all about earning it. And it's all about laying the groundwork for the emotion from the very first scene in the movie. And that's constantly how I'm always thinking, is what is this leading to? Where do we want it to go? And the early part of the movie is more important than the scene where you actually get the emotion you've done your homework so to speak if you've laid the groundwork then the emotion will come if you've been authentic about building the character and finding those moments that are real and authentic in the character
0: yeah i work with a director and a producer and they're always talking about paying it into the movie and then cashing it out that's their analogy is okay we're going to pay in we're going to pay in and now okay here's the scene where we need to cash out all that emotional value yeah
1: and if you haven't done that you can make people cry Certainly, but is it going to feel authentic or not?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Offline, you mentioned this idea, which sounded really like a Pixar philosophy to me, but a really smart philosophy of giving yourself the luxury of failing. Tell me a little bit about that.
1: Yeah, it started, uh, Pixar was really lucky in the early days to have Steve jobs. He was the owner and then when they went public, he retained 51% of the stock. So. He was a famous risk taker and he just instilled this idea. He did it at Apple of quality above everything else. And he gave the filmmakers the luxury of failing, like they could try things. And if it didn't work, he would take the hit and let them try again. And I've just seen it come up over the years. And especially now that we're more of an established company, how important it is to hold on to that and not get comfortable. I see it in young filmmakers where sometimes they're developing an idea and then they start second guessing, oh, what are the people who give the green light going to want as opposed to what I want to do and finding that balance and making sure you keep, just keep the creative juices going without getting this fear of failing all the time.
0: Yeah. I've talked to other editors about that, that you can't edit to please a director you can't think about that in a first cut you've got to edit the scene the way you think you want to cut it
1: right and that's yeah i think that's very important i mean i have a luxury of having worked with pete for so long i think i can align pretty quickly but if i have ideas or if i'm not sure about what the scene is about or i don't think they presented the scene in a way that it's communicating what it's really about then yeah i have the complete liberty to go and fail, essentially, to try to do something and put it out there.
0: What's the value of that for an editor, knowing that a director will give you that ability to fail? What does that do for you?
1: Oh, for me, it makes sure there aren't any ideas that aren't going to go undiscovered. If you're afraid to put something out there because somebody's not going to like it, then there could be a great idea you've come across that nobody will ever get to see. Well, that's the biggest thing for me.
0: Yeah, that's super powerful. It's a great lesson for beginning filmmakers of any type, editors or directors or writers, even speaking of writers, you brought up to me this famous David Mamet memo to his writing staff. I've seen that before, but for those who might not have read it or seen it or know about it, could you kind of explain what it is and how that affects you or what, how you use that to think about things when you're editing?
1: Yeah, if you do a Google search for David Mamet writer's memo, it's pretty famous. But mainly the gist of it was, I think the motivation for it, they were getting a lot of notes from executives wanting everything explained. And I think it was derailing the writing process a little bit. Again, it may even point to the second guessing yourself, trying to answer questions that nobody's really asking yet. But he said, when you start a scene, he gave them three questions they should be addressing in the scene as who wants what what happens if they don't get it, and why now? And I keep those three handy on a note card on my desk. If I'm getting lost in a scene or if I'm starting to question what the thing might be about, I sort of look at those questions and approach the scene from that point of view to try to get on track. And if I can't answer them, then I'll bring it up with the writer or the director and try to get to what the idea of the scene is really about.
0: Those questions, who wants what, what happens if they don't get it, and why now seem really plot-based. But how can those questions help you with even visual choices or cutaways or reaction shots or other things that are more editorial in nature?
1: I see what you mean, and I, I don't use them as a sort of a gospel. If I'm getting lost in a scene and you have so many ways you can approach it, or there's just a lot of ideas there, just to sort of rein things in, to give yourself a base of a jumping off point to start working again. And I sometimes get lost in the weeds with stuff.
0: I think we all do that.
1: (laughs) And those questions just sort of bring it back to, okay, let's look at it from that point of view and try to at least get a spine to the scene.
0: I love that idea. That seems a little bit more like something you do in animation editing where you're a little bit more part of the writing process. Do you also feel that that has value in traditional narrative editing?
1: Yeah, I think it could. Um, But yeah, you're right. It definitely helps us because we have the luxury of rewriting a whole scene if it's not working. But certainly from script to shooting a scene to editing a scene, a lot of changes can be made inadvertently And the director on the set can get a little bit lost once they start veering from the script. Mm -hmm. So I don't think it's a bad thing to use even in a live action setting where you are restricted to the footage.
0: Yeah, those are some great points. Kevin, thank you so much for a wonderful interview. Thank you for helping to make a great movie. Uh, Soul was really a wonderful journey.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
0: That's it for Art of the Cut this week. Thanks for listening. Also, check out provideocoalition.com for nearly 300 interviews with the world's top editors. Or read the book, Art of the Cut, Conversations with Film and TV Editors, for a topic-driven, curated experience. Thanks again to my guest, Kevin Nolting, ACE. Also, thanks to Jake Gum who edited this episode using Adobe Audition, and to Paul McKenna for Mixing and Mastering. If this is a podcast that you got something out of, follow me on Twitter and Instagram at at Steve Hullfish. I hope you subscribe to this podcast and give it a review, please. And finally, be sure to share them with a
1: filmmaking or film loving friend.